Well, good morning and thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you especially to the Johnson family for leading us in our time of worship today. So this Sunday is part two of our series called Four Gospels, One Jesus. And it's a series that is designed to teach us about the different Gospels, what makes each one unique, what it is about each one that that gives us a different angle into the life of Jesus but also how they all tie together the themes that support one another, that complement one another, and that end up giving us a four-dimensional picture of the character, the life, the humanity, and the Christ-like nature of Jesus. Last week, Ian started by looking at Matthew's Gospel, and he spoke about the Jewish tradition and how Matthew was a man who was very, very acutely aware of Jewish culture, Jewish tradition, the Jewish scriptures, the prophecies, the expectations. And he went to great lengths to slowly but surely weave this, this tapestry for his Jewish readership, which made it absolutely abundantly clear to them that Jesus was the Messiah that had been prophesied about many, many years before and that they have been waiting for. Today we're looking at Mark's Gospel. Mark is slightly different to Matthew in his approach. Matthew begins by um, taking us right back to the beginning of, of, of David's line and he takes us painstakingly through the, the ancestry to give his readership a clear picture of where Jesus came from. Mark doesn't do that. Mark's a much more punchy writer. Mark's a writer who goes at breakneck speed through the life of Jesus. Mark is an evangelist who is so excited about the message that he has to tell people that he almost trips over himself as as he races through the story. Mark doesn't bother about Christmas. He barely bothers about Easter at the other end of the Gospel, but we'll come to that later. So why? Well, maybe he just didn't like big family gatherings. But I suspect, actually, that for him, he was writing to a group of people who wouldn't have seen the relevance of Matthew's introduction to the birth of Jesus. Instead, Mark begins with a statement which is so direct, so punchy, that it's almost aggressive in driving his point from the word go. The beginning... Stop there. Two words in. We're already having to stop and pause. Don't worry, we're not going to do this throughout the entire gospel. We'll be here for months. But Mark begins with two words, the beginning. Now, that would have rung alarm bells in all sorts of different cultures and readers' minds when they heard those two words, because they would have known that in the beginning of the Jewish scriptures, those two words signify the start of creation, an event so significant it was the beginning of all time, the beginning of everything. Mark is, is, is purposeful in using these words to start his gospel. He's saying to his readership, before we even begin looking at the content, let me tell you, this is an event so significant, so big, that it can draw a parallel with the, the dawn of time, with the start of creation. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Again, Mark uses the word gospel Now, we're very familiar with that word today, but Mark's use of it, again, is significant because 
The word gospel literally means good news. But it wasn't a commonly used word. It wasn't a commonly used Greek word. Instead, it was saved for special occasions. Gospel, good news, was a word that was used to announce the birth of Augustus, who would later go on to become a Roman emperor. Now, the Romans eventually revered their emperors. They became, they became deities. They became gods. And so the word gospel was a very special word for Mark to use this word. It shows that he is writing about someone who has godlike status. This was a big sign, a big word to use. And then he says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He doesn't spend a couple of chapters beating around the bush, trying to painstakingly explain each detail and justify why he was why he, he thinks Jesus is who he is. He goes straight in for the kill, straight for the jugular. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what we're talking about today. Make no mistake about it. So Mark's got this very direct, very punchy introduction to his gospel. And the reason for that, most scholars today think that he was writing to the church in Rome. Now, the church in Rome, by this time, which was probably about sixth century, uh, sixth decade of the first century, the church in Rome was quite well established, but it wasn't an official movement. It was, it was highly persecuted. To be a Christian under an emperor like Nero would have meant a very, very rough existence. He often used to um, use Christians as target practice or burn them for fun. Nero was, was not a fan of the church. And in fact, that didn't start happening until Constantine was emperor about 250 years later. So we can't be sure who Mark was writing to, but we do know that it wasn't a Jewish audience. We know this because there are several times, notably in chapter 7, where he's, he's explaining a Jewish custom and he refers to it and then in brackets almost, explains this is because the Jews believed this and they did this and this was their custom. So if he was writing to a Jewish audience, he wouldn't have needed to explain what their custom was. They would have known it already. So there is evidence that Mark was writing for a Gentile readership. And this is why he's so aggressive in his evangelism, why he goes straight in, because he wants to do what Jesus said, to spread the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Now there are many themes that we see throughout the book of Mark. There are many unique aspects of Mark's gospel and the one that I'd just like us to, to focus on today is the messianic secret, this divine secret which runs throughout Mark's gospel. You see, for many of us today, we live lives which, whether we like it or not, often have two very distinct lines. We have the line that we follow on a Sunday. When we go to church, we sing songs, we pray prayers, we call hallelujah, and we celebrate the Christian faith. We celebrate that Jesus died for us, rose from the death, and is the risen Lord, that his Holy Spirit is in us and around us and working through us all the time. 
But then when we go to work or go and see friends or family who think our faith is an ancient relic, a waste of time, we sometimes shy away from claiming Christ for ourselves. Sometimes we see the goodness of Jesus working around us and then we don't comment on it. Mark was familiar with that feeling. And not only was he familiar with it, but he seeks to reassure his readership that it's okay sometimes to feel like that. In fact, sometimes Jesus wants us to keep him to ourselves. Got some verses here. You'll see a theme developing. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus heals many people, drives out demons. And we're told in verse 34, as he drove out many demons, he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Chapter 1, verse 44, Jesus, having healed a man with leprosy, says, see that you don't tell this to anyone. Then, in chapter 3, he's just, again, been casting out evil spirits, and the evil spirits fall down before him and cry out, you are the son of God. But, in verse 12, he gave them strict orders not to tell anyone who he was. Chapter 5, verse 43, he's just raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. What does he do? Does he say, go and tell people, look what I've done, this is, this is amazing. Go and tell people, they, that they won't doubt who I am. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this, in verse 43. It goes on. Chapter 7, verse 36. Jesus has just healed a deaf and mute man, but he commands those who witnessed it not to tell anyone. When he heals a blind man at Bethsaida, Jesus sent him home saying, do not go into the village. Chapter 8. After Peter's confession of Christ, Jesus warned him not to tell anyone. You see, there's this theme in Mark that we don't see in the other Gospels of Jesus telling, his, telling the people he's healed, the demons that he's driven out, the, 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 the family of the girl who he raised from the dead, even his own disciples, do not tell anyone. Now, sometimes they ignore him. Sometimes people cannot keep this news to themselves. It is such good news that they go and they tell people. But Mark puts it in there because as a reader of Mark's gospel, he, he, he's almost saying to us, look, don't, don't stop here. Don't make your decision based on this. Keep going. Don't make your decision here. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. There's more. There's more. There's more. And then Mark gives us a little hint when we get to chapter 9, the transfiguration. Up to now, there has been a breakneck pace through the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel. It's the shortest gospel. And if you read it and try and ignore the chapter and verse numbers, just read it as one continuous narrative, you will notice that for the first eight chapters, it's, it's a case of Jesus did this, then he did this, then immediately he went there, then straight away he went here, then this happened, then this, then this. And one commentator that I read recently said that if we look at Mark's gospel, the first eight chapters taking out the knowledge that we've got from the other Gospels of the time that, that these events took place over, 
you could read that as everything having happened in one month. We know nothing about Jesus' birth, we know nothing about Jesus' childhood, we know nothing about his, his adolescence, and we just suddenly get told, this is the story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Go! And after this eight chapters of breakneck narrative, we get to chapter nine, and Mark slams on the brake. We come skidding to a halt. He says, suddenly, out of nowhere, he says, after six days, after six days, so suddenly after this massive narrative, he pauses for breath. He allows his readers to absorb everything that they've just read, to, to be blown away by it, to think and reflect on who Jesus is, on who he was, on, on the life that he led. Where is this going, this amazing story? This is incredible. Why haven't I heard this before? What, what, what's going to happen? What's next? And suddenly, Mark gives us an insight into who Jesus really is. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly they, they looked round, and they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain... Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. So that's Mark's account of the transfiguration. When up on the mountain, Moses and Elijah appear, Jesus becomes so white, he's almost blindingly white, his clothing, this almost angelic presence, and they hear the audible voice of God, similar to the audible voice that was heard at Jesus' baptism. When God says in no uncertain terms, this is my son. And at that moment, Mark's readership suddenly have confirmation, all the, the claims, all the, 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 um, the statements from the demons and from others who guessing at him being the son of God. And Jesus says, don't say that. Don't tell people. Take, keep that to yourselves. You mustn't tell people. Suddenly here we have God the Father saying, this is my son. And even then, on the way down the mountain... Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen. But this time, there's a get out. This time, there's, 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 it's not an absolute categorical don't ever tell anybody. Instead, he says, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, of course, the disciples had no idea what that meant. They didn't have any foresight of, of the crucifixion, of the resurrection. 
they'd seen Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead. But Jesus was the one who had done that. Jesus, the Son of God, was the one who had done that. How could Jesus himself be raised from the dead? Who was going to do that? And that was a question that they battled with as they came down the mountain, but they were too afraid to ask Jesus. And so Mark's Gospel has this, this constant theme of the, the, the divine secret, the messianic secret, as some people call it. And as we get towards the end of Mark's Gospel, we begin to understand why it was that Mark had done that. But before we go into that, there's, a, there's another theme which, which we need to pick up on. Mark wanted to portray Jesus as a teacher. Jesus is referred to as teacher more times in Mark's Gospel than in any of the other three Gospels. And yet, the amount of teaching Jesus does in Mark's Gospel is less than the amount of teaching that's done in the other three Gospels. Mark spends a lot more time on narrative, describing things, telling us what was going on, whereas the others go from set piece to set piece, and we see the action taking place before us. We see the, the conversation and the spoken words of Jesus and those who are speaking to him. But Mark wants us to know that Jesus is a teacher, that Jesus is not someone who expects us to have all the answers. Jesus is someone who, who reveals who he is to us, step by step, even though in Mark's Gospel those steps take place very, very quickly, we learn who Jesus is and he leaves us free to make our own decisions. And that is the point where we need to go to the end of Mark's Gospel and have a look at what happens there. I said at the start of this sermon that Mark is an evangelist. And in many ways, he's an effective evangelist for today's world because of the way that he finished his gospel. Now, before we go any further, I've got to say there are three endings to Mark's gospel. There's the original one that ends quite abruptly. There's a, short end, a shorter ending which was added on, which sort of glosses over Jesus's appearance and resurrection and sending out the disciples. And then there's a longer one that gives a... Um, an ending which is closer to the other two synoptic gospels, especially to Matthew's. Neither of the two additional endings are particularly close stylistically to Mark's gospel. And so scholars today more and more are saying, let's leave it as it is. Let's, let's, let's disregard these, these longer endings, although they are they are relevant, they are important, they do tell us, um, they do tell us things that are, that are good to know, but actually Mark finishes very abruptly for a reason. I'm just going to read the end of Mark's Gospel, the whole of chapter 16, as it was originally written. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. 
see the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now I know many people in the church watched Line of Duty recently. And the last episode, the big finale, the build-up, the, 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 the episode where you're supposed to find out who, the, who the, the, the criminal mastermind was that had been behind all three or four or five or however many previous series there had been, he was set to be revealed. But it was really frustrating because there was this abrupt end and there was actually, uh, it was left entirely up to the, the individual viewer to decide whether or not it was a satisfactory ending, to decide whether or not they, um, who they thought was the mastermind. There was no real answer. And loads of people went online and moaned about it and said, that was terrible, that was awful. I wanted to know who did it. I wanted to have closure on this. But you see, when we give closure on a story like that, people switch off their TV and say, that was interesting, that was good. They don't think about it anymore. When we, when we leave the whiff of ambiguity around the end of any story, it challenges people to decide for themselves what they think the truth was, who they think did it, what they think was the cause how they think the story should have ended. In this day and age, evangelism is difficult. People want to question everything. We're used to being able to, to, to Google a question and get a uh, hundred million answers just like that. And we know that many of them will be unreliable, we should disregard them, but we know that there'll be some truth in there. Mark ends his gospel with a, a very abrupt statement. We've got the women who've gone to the tomb. They've seen this figure in white. They've been told that Jesus has risen from the dead. And for the first time in Mark's gospel, there is the instruction, go and tell people. Jesus has risen. Go and tell people. And so having had this, this, this secrecy, this theme of secrecy all through Jesus' life where he said, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone who I am. Suddenly, at the end, Mark says to his readership, now you've got the full story. That's it. Now you can see the whole thing. You can see that, that Jesus was and is the Son of God. Now go and tell people. It's the first time that people are told to go purposefully to tell others who Jesus was and what's happened. And what happens? Irony of ironies. The women are too afraid to do anything about it, and so they don't go and tell anyone. But it challenges the reader. What are you going to do? When you've read Mark's Gospel, you've read all the different accounts of the healings and the miracles and the teaching. You've read the, the four parables, only four parables, by the way, in the Gospel of Mark. You've read those four parables and been challenged by them. You've seen the way the disciples have slowly come to understand who Jesus is. And then you're left with that challenge. Go, tell people. And that's it. Now, we should point out, in Scripture, we do have, in 
the version I have in front of me, the longer ending of Mark's Gospel, in which Jesus appears to his disciples and appears to different people. And then eventually he says to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptised will be saved and whoever does not believe will be condemned. Then he goes on to speak of signs and wonders that will be performed in his name. Now, of course, that's a that's a much more pleasing ending. It's more in line with Matthew's ending because it, it tells us what to do. We see the risen Christ. But Mark's original ending gives us a challenge. How are you going to respond? What do you think your response should be? Do you feel called to keep Jesus to yourself, to keep him a secret? Or do you feel called to go and tell people? How are you going to respond to Jesus? What's your personal response? Are you going to switch off after Mark's gospel and go online and say, well, that was rubbish. There was no clear ending. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Or are you going to work it out for yourself? Mark gives us a picture of a Jesus who is ferocious. He doesn't appear to come from anywhere. He just suddenly appears. A bit like in C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles, the lion Aslan just suddenly appears amongst, amongst his troops, amongst his followers, when they need him most. The church in Rome was being persecuted. They were suffering terrible oppression at the hands of the emperor and the Roman army. They needed, they needed a gospel. They needed a saviour. And Mark gives them exactly what they need. But he doesn't just create one from out of nothing he gives them the living active Jesus the Jesus that got amongst his people the Jesus that that performed healings and teachings and miracles the Jesus who took them up onto that mountain and showed himself beyond any doubt to be the son of God Mark leaves his non-Jewish readership in no doubt at all as to who he believes Jesus is and he leaves them with the challenge who do you believe Jesus is and what are you going to do about it and that challenge is as fresh and as relevant for you and I today as it was for the Roman church back in the first century let's pray Father God we thank you for your word and we thank you for this gospel this good news, this, this revelation of a life that was so significant that Mark draws a parallel with the dawn of creation. And Father, in many ways he, he's right because it was the start of the new covenant between God and man, between us and you, between our heavenly Father and your created children. Father, we thank you that as we read Mark's gospel, we have this exciting, this action-packed adventure which drags us through the life of Jesus and then at the end leaves us with this massive challenge. How are we going to respond to Jesus? Well, Father, we can respond in, in so many different ways and each and every one of us will feel a different response but Father, I pray that you will give us the confidence to act out the response that you put on our hearts. We pray, Father, that we will, we will remember that this, this 
theme of secrecy that is threaded throughout Mark's gospel comes to the very end. And at that point, at that point, there is the instruction to go and tell people, to go and and do something about the risen Christ. Father, we pray that for us today, we can respond to that instruction in our lives, in our everyday lives, that we won't have two separate parallel lives running, running alongside each other, but instead, every time that we meet somebody, whenever, whatever situation we find ourselves in, people will always see Jesus reflected in us, that we will always be the best ambassadors that we can be for you, and that at every opportunity, we can have that boldness that Mark begins his gospel with, that we believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Father, bless us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.